So, this is our sixth sermon on prayer, if you can believe it. Uh, We've already talked through the last five weeks um, about what you could call a theology of prayer. And that's what God has to say about prayer. Um, Throughout that series, there's been a number of uh, practical things that we hope have been helpful to you uh, to live a prayer life. But honestly, all of those practical things will only be helpful if you have a motivation to pray because you know what prayer is actually about. And so the way we've tried to explain that um, is just going through five questions that we think are important if you want to understand what God has to say about prayer. And so just to remind you of those questions, um, the first question we asked is, what is prayer? And as we looked at David in Psalm 23, he was explaining prayer is uh, communing and communicating with God through life. And that's the most general um, way that you could explain prayer, just living life and communicating with God about your life so that you would commune with him, that you would live out a relationship with him, which is for him and dependent on him. And the second question that we asked was, why do we pray? And part of what was involved with that was this question of, if God is sovereign, uh, why do I pray? And the answer um, to that question is that it's actually because God is sovereign that we pray. Because God is in control and has a plan, he has worked out that plan by wanting his people to ask him for things. So that he would show that they can be dependent on him and that his plan would be fulfilled through prayer. And if you have more questions about that, that was the second sermon, and they're all on the CBC website if you want to listen to it. Um, But the third question that we asked, which Josh Feechster preached on, was, uh, does God actually answer our prayers? And the answer from Hebrews 10 is an emphatic yes. Yes, God answers our prayers, but it's not because of us. It's not because uh, we are so awesome. It's not because we've done enough to make God happy with us. It's because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, um, we have access to the Father, and he does hear and answer our prayers. And then the fourth question that we asked that Evan preached on uh, was, what do we pray? Um, What is the content of our prayer? And uh, though it's very wide, though you can pray and ask God and speak to him about anything in your life, um, there's also some helpful specifics and some important things Um, that we should want to pray about often. And Evan explained a lot of those things from uh, Luke chapter 11 in the Lord's Prayer. That's Jesus teaching his people how to pray. And then the final question that we dealt with last week with Jason was this question of why is prayer hard? Because just because we know uh, that we should pray doesn't mean we do pray. And I can admit that even myself. Prayer is not a simple or easy thing. And as Jason showed us in John chapter 15, the reason that we don't pray, the reason that prayer is hard is because we don't abide in Christ, which means we don't live actively with Christ. We tend to live self-dependent lives where we forget about him. But if you know that life is about Christ and life is truly fulfilled and makes sense and is real the way it's supposed to be in Christ, then it will make you a prayerful person. Now, I think all of those things just by themselves are enough to give you a really solid theology of prayer. Uh, However, there's one other question that I do want to answer tonight that I do think is very, very helpful for you. Um, And that is, how do you keep praying? 
Because the reality is that all of this, if you understand it well, might motivate you to pray for the next week or the next month even. But what about after that? What about after that when uh, Josh on Sunday sermons has preached more of Luke and we here start preaching another new sermon and all of a sudden everything that we learned about prayer is out the window and you feel dry again and it's difficult to pray? I think that's why we need to focus our attention now as we end this series on motivations that you would be a person defined by prayer. That prayer would be something rooted in you, ingrained in you, so that you wouldn't just have religion, but you would have a relationship with Christ, um, which is so much better than just doing things. It's actually living life the way God designed it to be. And so because of that, I want to look at a very interesting story in the Bible that I think helps explain a couple of principles that'd be helpful. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 12. Uh, Acts chapter 12. And as you make your way to Acts chapter 12, let me just tell you a couple of things about the book of Acts that will help hone in your attention a little bit. Um, The book of Acts, in a sentence, is about Christ creating the church. The book of Acts is about Christ creating the church. Christ came into this world to save sinners. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that explain what he did and how he lived and then died and then rose again. And now that message of what Christ did, has done, and is even now doing from heaven, that message needs to be heard and believed by people throughout the whole world. And the book of Acts is how that happens, how God raised up people, um, explained the message of the gospel and how to live for Christ. And those people go throughout the entire ancient Near Eastern world. They spread and tell the gospel to any sinner who would hear it so that they would be transformed and that local churches that love Christ and would worship him become established. That's what the book of Acts is about. And ultimately, all of this is not going to rest on how awesome the people of Christ are. It's not going to rest on Christians just being amazing. Ultimately, God is going to make all of this happen by his power through Christ. And ultimately, the way that happens is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has an exceptionally important role in the book of Acts so that God would establish his church. That he would use people to establish his church, but that God himself would establish his church. And he says that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus himself explains that you will receive power to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So God himself is going to give power to make sure that this church can be created. However, he's also going to use many means, or you could think about it as methods or instruments, by which people are going to hear and believe the gospel. So he's going to use, first of all, his word. Um, It's only by the power of hearing the message of the gospel that anyone could be saved by the gospel. Paul explains that in Romans 10, where he says, how will they be called if they never heard? And how will they hear if a preacher has never told them the truth of the gospel? So God's word is going to be used to demonstrate the power of God to create the people of God. But he's also going to do that, not only through the word, but through people. So the chief people in the uh, book of Acts that are used are the apostles, who are the chief leaders in the church. 
um, who don't do anything of their own authority, but that they were friends with Christ, heard this message, know it well, have been walking with him for three years, and God has used them to start these first churches so that people would know that the church should look as Christ designed it to look. So there's the word, the apostles, and one thing I think you could even add in there is miracles. God demonstrates his power through certain things that he does called miracles. And they're not supposed to be normal for the entire church going forward. But what they do do is prove who God's people are and that the truth of God's promises are real and rooted in the word. So those miracles actually end up pointing back to the people of God and those people end up pointing back to the word of God. So everything is kind of coming from this word of God demonstrating the power of God. However, I mention all of that because there's actually one means, one part that's really important in the book of Acts that isn't mentioned a lot. And that is how God uses prayer as part of his plan. Prayer actually has a very important role in the book of Acts. And without giving you an entire theology of this, because we do need to get to our text, there are at least four times in the book of Acts where prayer is part of some of the most important things that are happening in the church. And the first one you see is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where right after Christ has risen from the dead, takes his seat in heaven and begins um, this uh, establishing of the church, what's the first thing the people of God do? They pray. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, with one accord, they devoted themselves to prayer. So before the church does anything, they gather together and they pray. And that continues even to the next chapter in chapter 2, where Peter preaches this sermon to thousands of people. And he explains uh, how Jesus Christ has come to accomplish salvation. And it says 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 people. But after they get saved, what happens? It says in uh, chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So again, they devote themselves to come together after all these people are saved, and one of the foremost important things they need to do is pray. Now that continues as many other things happen and many other people get saved, and eventually, Uh, So many people get saved that roles need to be established. People need to do different things as part of Christ's mission. And one thing in chapter 6 that some people have a problem with is there should be people who are helping uh, widows. And so people come to the apostles and they say, hey, these widows need food. Uh, They need to be provided for like everybody else. And that's why we have deacons. Deacons were commissioned for that purpose. But part of the reasons deacons were commissioned, it says in chapter 6, verse 4, is that the leaders of the church, the apostles, they need to be protected to make sure they fulfill their two most important roles. And guess what those roles are? In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says they will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So if you ask me, what's the, most, the two most important things that I do? One is I would say the ministry of the word, which is preaching, counseling, studying, and prayer. That's the other most important thing. And the fourth way that prayer ends up being so important in Acts is that uh, prayer is actually there when the mission of Christ comes to a head, which is when not just Jewish people, but Gentile people, which is basically all of us, non-Jewish people, enter into the church. 
And one of the first guys that's highlighted in Acts, who's a Gentile, who gets saved, is a guy named Cornelius. And when an angel of God comes to him, guess what he's doing? He's praying. It's not an accident. Because in chapter 10, that angel comes to him and says, uh, your prayers have ascended before God. Which is a huge statement to make. It's actually so important that the text also highlights in verses 30 and 31 when he tells that to Peter again. So we hear it twice to see how important it is that even Gentile people who are entering the church for the first time, even they understand how important prayer is. So as we reach chapter 12, there's at least four reasons we should know prayer is important because prayer was the beginning of the church. It established the church. It defined the most important roles in the church. And it's part of how the Gentiles entered the church. Prayer is super important. And it only continues that pattern as we get to Acts chapter 12, which is where we are today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start by reading verses 1 to 5. Verse 1 says, about that time. And that time is just before a famine takes place. And it says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This story begins with the chief antagonist, or you could say villain. Previously in Acts, it was Saul. But Saul has been dramatically saved by God, become an apostle, and was renamed Paul. But just because he's been saved doesn't mean that the church isn't being persecuted. And so as Herod begins the narrative, it's a good reminder of the fact that just as these Christians were not comfortable in this world, neither are we. Something very shocking is going to happen, and it's a good reminder of this guy Herod, who, by the way, is not the same Herod from Jesus' time. It's uh, one of his sons, most likely. This guy is basically representing the attitude of the world to Christians which is that they're not comfortable with God's people because they're not comfortable with God. And King Herod, as a personification of that, is going to prove that by doing something very dramatic and very tragic. In verse 1 to 2, it explains not only does he violently oppose God's people, but he executes an apostle. It says his name is James, which is a big deal, not only because the apostles were important leaders, not only because they were loved, But because this apostle in particular, James, was one of the three apostles in Jesus' inner circle. You could almost say it's one of Jesus' best friends was just executed. And even more tragically than that, the Jewish people who are supposed to be God's people, the people that God came to make his instruments of redemption throughout the whole world, those people who first executed Jesus are now happy with the execution of other Christians. And Herod, knowing that it would be politically helpful to be on the Jews' good side, decides, well, one apostle isn't enough. Why don't I go for another? So he does. 
He puts Peter in prison with enough security to guarantee he'll die the next day where he'll be publicly executed to get political favor. You might think, I might think, if I was in that situation, that feels like a pretty hopeless situation, but that's not the way the church viewed it. At least not so hopeless that they would do nothing. Instead, verse 5 makes it abundantly clear that they did have something to do, which was pray. The church prayed because they aren't hopeless when they compare the power of Herod to the power of Christ. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That reminder motivates them to ask the God to help them and to help Peter, who is more powerful than any force of opposition in this world. And so they ask him. When things are at their worst, they know where they can turn. So they collect themselves and they ask God to deliver Peter. And verse 6 begins to explain what happens next. Verse 6 says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, which means notice this, something big's about to happen. An angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and he woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That reminder of Peter in verse 11 is important. Now I'm sure. Because this isn't a parable. This isn't a story that didn't happen to explain a bigger purpose. This is something that really happened in history. Peter was surrounded by guards, both sleeping beside him and guarding a prison. He had heavy chains on his arms that reminded him of how helpless he was to save himself from execution. Which he seemed to know because he was comfortable enough to sleep. Which probably means he believed in that moment it was God's will that he would die And he resigned himself to that. Except God didn't. An angel shows up and apparently finds it important to tell us. He gives him a wake-up smack, wakes him up with a bright light, gets rid of all obstacles, chains fall off his hands. He gets him past the guards, through the first gate, through the second gate, through all of the prison gates, out into the street, into complete freedom. And even Peter seemed to be surprised at how easy and casual almost this was for God to accomplish. Almost like the only reason he was brought to prison was to get a tour of the prison by an angel. And even though it seems humorous, it 
gives a really important point that God is trying to make, which is God is not threatened by any force opposing him. All of Herod's power is nothing. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 2 says that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Because it is ridiculous to think that any force in this world would be worthy opposition to the God of the universe. When God's enemies oppose Peter, God is unconcerned. He both raised Peter up as an apostle and ordained that he would have more use than just dying the next day. It doesn't matter what Herod and the Jews wanted, only what God wanted to happen or to not happen. And part of the reason that this text is essential is because verse 5 said that prayer had a part to play in it, didn't it? The church prayed for Peter and he was released. Just like James 5 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, the prayers of many righteous people gathered together also does much. But before you get too pumped about the human participants, we need to read the last part of the story, which is in verses 12 to 17, where things don't work out exactly the way you might think they would. Verse 12 says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and he went to another place. That's our story. Peter, after getting saved, needs safety because he's an escaped prisoner. People are looking for him. And so he goes to a place where he believes Christians are. And they are. And they're praying. And they're probably praying for him, according to verse 5. And he shows up. And for some reason, the servant girl is so excited that she doesn't bring him into safety, but has to go and tell everyone first. And what does verse 15 say? That she reported that Peter was standing at the gate and they said to her, well, obviously, because we were just praying for that very good thing, so go and let him in. That's not what it says, right? That's not what it says. Verse 15 says, you're nuts. The very thing they were praying for was answered by God and they denied it. And then even as the servant girl was insisting, they decided to reinterpret it. Well, it can't be that, so what's the next logical thing? Well, Jewish people, according to uh, many of their own previous Jewish scriptures called the Talmud, many of them believed in guardian angels. Um, everybody had an angel, and sometimes if people saw someone's angels, it usually looked like the person they were protecting. So they thought, well, maybe that's what it is. It's probably an angel that is protecting Peter, but it couldn't be Peter. And until Peter stands in front of them, they see the truth. And are completely shocked. Denial 
reinterpretation and complete shock. That's how the church responded to God answering prayer. So if we left there and we did nothing else, try and answer this question. What on earth is God trying to tell us about prayer? What is God trying to tell us about prayer? And even before you try to answer that question, answer the quick question, who are these people? The reality is these are just ordinary people. They're people who loved God. And they're pretty extraordinary in the sense that they were faithful despite persecution, despite being fewer and fewer of them as people go and plant churches all over the world. They clearly trust God because they do pray. And yet they seem to be amazed that God would answer their prayers. The reality is these people are very ordinary Christians in one sense. Which means that part of the reason they're here in scripture is for us to learn from them. Both they're good and they're not so good. And I think as we look at them, there's at least two very helpful things we can learn about their praying and their response to answered prayer. And I think if you get these two things, I think it'll really help you pray. And not just pray tomorrow or pray the next day, but continue to pray. And so let's look at them. The first one is this. You will keep praying if you pray with contentment. Contentment. Being content means to be thankful, to be grateful, and it means to trust what God has done for you and will do for you no matter the circumstances in your way. Another way to say it is to be at peace, to understand God has a big plan and he's accomplishing it no matter the forces opposed to him. That's what being content means. And if you are a content Christian, it changes the way you pray. And the way it changes the way you pray is that you will pray knowing that God hears and responds to you even if he doesn't fulfill your prayers exactly the way you wanted him to. Let me explain what I mean by bringing another verse in here to help clarify, which is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In that section, Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Make your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there's other verses that talk about how God answers our prayers, but this verse is a little different in that it says, pray and God will give you peace. God will give you peace. And we need that because we're anxious people. You, I guarantee, get anxious or nervous or worried or fearful about something. And so hearing about peace is essential for us. And one of the ways that God says you receive supernatural peace from the God of the universe is when you give your anxieties to God, when you pray them. And what happens when you pray is you're provided with a peace that knows something that knows that God is always committed to his plan that is perfect and better than our plan. Which means it's also better than some of the things we think we need and pray to God about. What we don't need is God answering all of our prayers. Because sometimes we have bad prayers. But when God does 
hear the prayers of his people, he does answer them, but sometimes in a different and better way than we expected. And for that, we need peace, supernatural peace. And the church, in verse 5, had that. Now, how can I be confident they had that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in verse 5, it says the church prayed for Peter. But what comes before that? In verses 1 to 4, it says that the church was violently persecuted and the apostle James died. Now, just ask yourself the question. Do you think that the church prayed for persecuted Christians? Yeah, I think they did. Their friends and family who were Christians who were being persecuted. And you know what? They kept getting persecuted. Ask yourself another question. Do you think the church prayed for James to be saved from execution? Yeah, I think they did. I don't think they would not pray for James and then pray for Peter. But what happened? James still died. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you prayed for something and it didn't happen and it shook you up a little bit? The reality is that the early church could pray and still know that God listened to their prayers. He just had a different answer than they expected. I heard a quote once that said, God always answers prayer in one of three ways. He either says yes, or he says not yet, or he says no because I have something better planned. I think there's something right about that third part in in this situation, which is that even as you pray for God to avert tragedies in your life, even if they still happen, that doesn't mean God ignored your prayers. It just meant that even tragedy was part of his plan. Even tragedy had a part to play. And the part in that plan that it played also includes that no guilty person ever goes unpunished and no faithful person never fails or is unrewarded. And God promises that all over the Bible when he tells you and confirms to you that he is sovereign no matter what happens. Isaiah 46 verses 8 to 10 says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Which means no matter what Herod planned, no matter how much he hated the church, anything he could accomplish could only happen if God saw fit that it would be part of his plan. Even if from our perspective, which is limited and finite, seems to not make sense. And the Bible's honest about that in other places like Ecclesiastes 7.14, which is a good verse to have memorized, which says this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other. The church knew that God's plan was not interrupted by the death of James, and it was not interrupted by the persecution of the church. They had peace, which God provided. A peace to trust him, to rest in him, and be content with him. And they could still pray for Peter, despite what happened to James. 
Because even when God's people face opposition or tragedy, they can not only know that it's part of his plan, but even the anxieties and the worries and doubts that they have, they can bring those to God as well. And God, as our Father, wants to hear them. Not only to provide peace, but also that we would understand his plan and his love and his sovereignty more deeply. Being content in our sovereign God changes your prayer life. It means you can pray and not get everything you want and understand why that happened. But there's more to that. There is a second thing that I think is also in this text and will also dramatically help your prayer life as well. The first one was contentment, but the second one is that you need to pray with expectation. Pray with expectation. If you want to have a parenthesis for this, you could also say to pray with hope. And what I'm, they're both talking about the same thing. And that is seen in the second time prayer is mentioned, which is in verse uh, 12. And then specifically the response of the church in verses 15 and 16. And you'll remember, what was the response of the church when they prayed for Peter and then they saw that their prayers were answered? They thought the person who shared the answer to prayer was crazy. They reinterpreted it. And they were completely shocked by it. And we might think that that's a really bad response to prayer. But before we get into this a little bit, let me just give you two notes very, very quickly. Uh, The first note is that probably part of the shock the church had, I assume, was that they were pretty content. Remember, they prayed for James and he didn't get saved from execution. And they still prayed for Peter. And they still recognize, well, you know what? If Peter dies too, that doesn't mean we stop prayer. It doesn't mean we uh, stop our relationship with God. God is still good. God is still sovereign. So I'm sure there was contentment in there. And the second thing is that this verse doesn't make any mention of how the people needed to be scolded for their response. Peter doesn't come in and say, how dare you? How dare you? None of that's recorded here. And so we can't go overboard in our judgment of the church's response. But we still got to address it because it's important. And I think it just gets back to something that's true of most Christians, I'd say, which has to deal with your prayer life. And that point is that our prayers tend to be shy, timid, cautious, and filled with doubt. Most Christians don't pray with a lot of boldness. And I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is because... It can be a lot easier to pray for things you're confident are going to happen. You know, please give me straight A's tomorrow when you've studied super hard for it. It's easy to ask for things like that than for difficult things that might shake your faith if they don't happen. If I ask for a big thing and it doesn't happen, that's going to mess me up a little bit. That's going to mess with my view of how good God is to me. So maybe the easiest way out to still be a Christian is I just don't pray for anything exciting. The problem is that's not what this text says. Clearly, a big point of the text is that they could pray for something big, like Peter being redeemed from an impossible situation, and then God does answer those prayers. That's a huge thing that's mentioned here. And I think part of that's supposed to be prescriptive. Now, at the same time, you can't go crazy, so you can't be prescriptive so much that you're like, okay, God answers prayer, 
He answers big prayers. So I pray I'm going to get into Harvard without ever having to study. I'm going to date Taylor Swift and I'm going to get uh, unlimited boba for the rest of my life. And I think if you think that that's funny, I think you know that that's not what the text is probably trying to tell us about prayer. You just ask whatever you want. And the reason I think we can know that is because of Jason's text last week. If you remember from John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus himself tells us something about prayer, right? In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, in there is big prayer. God says, whatever you wish, right? It says that. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But it doesn't just say that, right? It doesn't just say, whatever you want, it's yours. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you abide in Christ, then ask whatever you wish. And ask yourself, why is that so important? The reason it's important is because if you abide in Christ, which means you live with him, if you live with Christ, that means you learn from Christ, you become like Christ, and you start to want the things Christ wants because they're better than what we want. And when you start praying Christ-like prayers from a Christ-becoming heart that loves Christ, nothing is impossible. Those are the kinds of prayers God loves, the kinds of prayers that righteous people desire to pray because it's part of a plan for God to glorify himself, and there can be nothing better than that. Nothing. Abide in Christ, learn from him, love what he loves, and then pray with eager expectation. Pray eagerly. Because as Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Far more. Which means learn from Christ and think about the greatest thing that could possibly happen. Something specific in your life. The most stubborn, hard-hearted person you know. Maybe they could come to Christ. And God could do so much more. So much more. The thing that's weird in this text is that the church knew that, right? In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, they were praying. They were faithful, even amidst persecution. And yet for some reason, God answers their prayer and they were doubtful. It seemed too good to be true. It's almost like in their mind, they had normalized suffering so greatly that the only thing in store for a Christian is just suffering. That's all God's going to do. And they were fine with it. But it meant when good things happened, they thought, this is, this is too much. God is good, but he, it'll be really good in heaven. But for now, the worst. And that's not what happens. There is a place in the Christian consciousness, and I think there's a place in your theology of prayer that you should pray with boldness. That God would do more than we could ask or think. There's a Puritan named David McIntyre who says it this way. If we do not expect to receive answers to our requests, then our whole conception of prayer is at fault. My dear brother, I have learned that the source of much blessing is just to go to Jesus and tell him what you need. I think you can add something to that. 
If you have thought, God, please provide this because I think this might fit in your plan and glorify you, please do it. I think so often God loves to answer those desires to prove something to you. Not that you deserve it, but just that God is gracious to say, yeah. Prayer fits into a place in God's program. And that should make you pray big. To dream a little bit more than you do in your prayer life and see what God would desire to accomplish through it. Here's another reason that that might be important, because I think there's another little tiny thing, a little note that we should add, which is I think part of the reason we don't pray big things is because we don't think we're great Christians. I think there's a lot of things that we want, and we don't pray them because in the back of your mind, you remembered a sin you committed today or a sin you kept committing this week. And you compare yourself with other Christians and you think, I don't think God would be pleased to grant my request because I'm, I'm not hot stuff. I'm not a great Christian. Well, I think the doubt in the early church in verses 15 and 16 should change you a little bit. God answered the prayers of doubtful Christians. Does that encourage you a little bit? I know that James says that the prayer of a righteous person avails much, it accomplishes much, but you know what's not true? That the prayers of sinful, doubtful, hesitant believers accomplish absolutely nothing. That's not true. Even Christians with a tiny little mustard seed of faith can pray, and God does accomplish things through it. And you know what? It's those Christians that God actually creates into righteous people. Already righteous through the blood of Christ, but more righteous in their activity and their prayer life. Because they've seen more and more that God accomplishes so much, not because we're awesome Christians, but because we serve an awesome God and we're washed clean by a perfect Christ. That's why God answers prayers. So you know what's a great thing to pray for first? Pray for your doubts. It's a big thing for God to accomplish. Pray for a pattern of sin in your life that just seems unbreakable and just watch what God will accomplish in your life. Pray for those things that seem to make you hesitant to totally give your life to Christ and see that he's already conducted a plan that would end in your recognizing your salvation. And I want to put those things together in a little bow as we end things tonight, which is to briefly tell you the story of someone you guys know, uh, which is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, if you've never heard of him, he was a guy called a reformer, which means he was part of a historical period that saw a huge revival in people hearing the gospel and coming to Christ after many, many years of not a lot of faithful Christians being around. Martin Luther was a Catholic. He became a monk. And the reason he became a monk is because he was walking home in a storm one day as he was training to be a lawyer. He got super scared because there was a thunderstorm. And he said, God, if you save me from the storm and I don't die, I'll become a monk. And that's what happened. And he became a monk and he became a professor and he became a really good Catholic. But even as he taught, he could not get over the fact that he was a great, great sinner and couldn't look good before a great, great God. And then things changed for him by God's grace when he was reading the book of Romans. 
And one day he recognized that the scriptures do not say that we are righteous because of what we've done, but we are righteous because of what Christ did for us. And the way that God sees us, the way he sees Christ as perfect, is through faith, through believing in Christ. And believing by faith and not by works, that changes everything. And for Martin Luther, that changed everything. It made him into a great reformer. It made him into a great pastor. It made him into a wonderful husband eventually. It made him into a wonderful preacher and teacher and theologian and writer. But you know what's not talked about very much? Is that it also made him a great prayer. Because that knowledge of how good God is to save us through Christ, it changed the way that he could not only look to Christ, but continue speaking to him. And so as one person was quoted as saying, it was said of Luther that he prayed with as much reverence as if he were praying to God and with as much boldness as if he had been speaking to a friend. I think for many of you guys that grew up in the church, seeing God with reverence seems easier. But I think seeing God as a friend seems a lot harder, maybe even sacrilegious. But that's how Martin Luther prayed. Because he didn't just see God as a sovereign king, which he is, but he also saw him as a father, which means he loved him. And he desired to speak with him, meet with him, commune with him, and answer him. And I'm telling you, if that is the God you believe in, who is both the Lord of your life and the greatest friend you could have in your life, then you'll pray. No matter the circumstances that you meet with, you'll recognize God has a plan that even if it's different than our prayers, it doesn't mean he ignored our prayers. It just means he has something better than our prayers. And yet at the same time, God is a father and a friend who loves to grant the desires of his children. That is the way a father is to his people. And so I ask you again, what is God telling you about prayer? This is what God's telling you about prayer. Pray. That's what he's telling you about prayer. As one Puritan very elegantly put it, do it, do it, do it. Pray. Be people who know you can ask God for anything and everything. And as you become a prayerful person, God will show you more and more, not only what is worthy of prayer, but how prayer defines a relationship, changes and sanctifies you to be someone who sees not what God is just doing in your life, which is important and amazing, but what God is doing in a whole church and a whole world beyond what you could expect. And I think if you have contentment, and you know you also have the freedom to be expectant and bold in the things you pray for. I think you'll be people who will never want to stop praying. So let's pray now. Father, you are so much more clear in your word than I could ever be. And your word is so much greater than we could ever assume or expect. Because you are a God who is not subservient to us. You have greater plans than we could imagine, and you can do more in our life than we could expect. So, Father, I just pray through all the noise, through the uh, distractions, through anything else, 
that might be on our mind. We just pray that your word would work in our hearts, that you would soften us to understand who you are and how you want to not just save us, but relate with us, to have a relationship with us, that though we do not see you, we love you. And you are doing something greater than we can imagine. So help us, Father, to pray that we would see it, that we would be changed by it, and that we would love it. Uh, You are greater than our sin. You are even greater than our prayers. Uh, But Father, even though you are sovereign to give and to take away, you are also gracious to provide, to provide so much more than we could ask or think. Uh, Father, let these things be deep in our hearts that we would be people who would be expectant to see the amazing things that you have for us and for our church um, and help us to understand just how deeply you love us through Christ, that we would serve you and love you more greatly than when we came in. And we are confident you can do all of these things because we rest on your promises. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>